On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Now, this week on Post launched a new commemorative stamp in honour of Erskine Childers. Not the one who was president, mind, but his own father. Uh, born in England, a veteran of the British Armed Forces in several campaigns, Erskine Childers, the elder, was a fairly unlikely Irish revolutionary, I think it's fair to say. The circumstances of his death, which was a century ago in the week coming, uh, caused a lot of controversy at the time. But his family's search for peace in the aftermath is a really inspiring story. And Donald Fallon, as ever, is here to tell us all about it. Donald, very few comings to power as symbolic as that of President Childers. Yeah, and many many listeners will have memories of, of Erskine Hamilton Childers. He was the fourth president of Ireland. And, you know, he followed a man, but he also followed an age. He came after Dev. And his tenure was brief, you know, inaugurated in June 73, dies in November 74. So, you know, a very short presidency. But in other ways, it was kind of symbolically very important because here was the state, you know, formally led now uh, by the son of one of its kind of earliest political opponents. You know, Mm. the idea that someone whose father had met his end in front of a, a firing squad in November 1922 could go on to lead the state was extraordinary. So Erskine Childers, the president that, you know, that that many listeners will remember, I mean, he was a child of the Irish Revolution. Uh, his life had been shaped by it, a, a very you know happy upper middle class childhood in Chelsea, given up for a life in the, the shadows of the Irish Revolution in which his dad was a key, key propagandist. But this week, this beautiful new stamp mm. by, by Mick O'Dea, I'm a great fan of Mick O'Dea. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Uh, formerly head of the, the Royal Hibernian Academy, uh, marks the centenary of the execution of Erskine Childers Sr. And look, We've gone into this difficult part now of the mm. decade of centenaries. Well, yeah. If only we could have all ended at holding hands at Bail Law saying, you know, all is forgiven. Yeah. But now we're, I suppose, we're not merely into civil war centenaries, we're into civil war execution centenaries. Yes, and yeah. that's a different thing. Which is a tricky part of the decade to try and navigate. Um, Erskine Childers, the elder, um, officially I think Robert Erskine Childers, uh, to try and distinguish him from Erskine Hamilton Childers, his son who became the president. Um, he wasn't the typical kind of prisoner who ends up behind a firing squad because, as you mentioned there, his upbringing was very, very brief. British. Very British. I mean, he's born in London's Mayfair uh, in 1870, and he, he went on to study at Cambridge, uh, You know, entered a high-profile civil service life. And if you're going to work in the British civil service, where do you want to be? Well, he works in the House of Commons, you know, nonetheless. So he's at the very top of the British civil service, uh, and he participates voluntarily in, in, in the Boer War as an artillery driver. So I think it's fair to say this young man, you know, young Erskine Childers, he's something of, a, of, a, of an imperialist. Mm. You know, he's convinced of the merits of the British Empire project, but then there's this radical turn in his life. And I suppose why he does it is mad because when you look at his life, it's so perfect in terms of occupation. Yeah. Uh, beyond that, I mean, he's, he seems destined for an incredible writing career. He publishes a novel called The Riddle of the Sands in 1903. And that's still studied by, by people who do English literature in university. It's considered to be a genre definer of a new kind of work, which was the espionage novel. Okay. And the Daily Telegraph, which you know I'm sure our listeners know I'm an avid reader of, <laughs> yeah. uh, they bestowed upon the book the title Second Greatest Spy Novel of All Time, behind only... Kipling. So, I mean, this guy was an incredibly talented writer, mm. someone that was a high flyer in the civil service, Cambridge educated, up, darling of the upper echelons of British society. Uh, Donald Fallon is only just waiting for a positive review of Three Castles Burning the Book from the Daily Telegraph. <laughs> as, as, as someone who takes the Telegraph every day, he just can't wait. Uh, so how does someone then move from being, you know, we might say proud imperialist, House of Commons clerk, you know, Cambridge man, to someone that ends up questioning all of that so publicly? I suppose there's a whole generation of people who are having their worldview challenged. And look, probably the most famous example of it is, you know, Roger Casement, or let's give him his title, Sir, Sir Roger Casement, yes. who's having the same yeah. kind of questioning going 
going on in his head. But there's a whole host of, of influences, I think, in, in, in moving Erskine Childers politically. There's love, Molly Osgood, American woman he, he falls in love with. She's a direct descendant of former President John Quincy Adams. Okay. So her family are no great admirers of the British Empire, it should be said. There's the home rule crisis at home. And I think for, for people like him, the way the home rule crisis is dealt with in British politics. It leads to a lot of questioning about what's going on here. Like the UVF, the Ulster Volunteer Force, when they land guns off the coast, uh, it kind of looks like no one's done anything to stop them. And if anything, the state's kind of turned a blind eye to them and even facilitated it. So someone who had worked as a senior civil servant in the Commons, I suppose he starts to feel that maybe you know, something smells a little bit off. Mm. And he writes this great argument. He says, the purpose of the Irish Unionist Party in the Commons is purely negative. It is passionately sentimental and absolutely unrepresentative uh, of the practical viral genius of Ulster industry. In other words, there's something rotten with Ulster unionism. And that's yeah. what moves him, I suppose, towards a new way of thinking. Uh, it's. Uh, I think a lot of people might be struck by that quote about the uh, the purpose of unionists in the House of Commons to be <laughs> purely negative and, and wonder how much might have changed maybe in the reading uh, 110 years or so. Um, not only though was Childers horrified that the UVF as you mentioned are, are landing guns off the Irish coast but then he thinks that uh, actually he ends up going full circle and says well the only right thing to do then would be to help nationalists go and do exactly the same thing. I think it's bonkers that the guy who writes the great espionage novel of his age then involves himself in an incredible act of espionage himself. You yeah. know, him and, 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 and Molly uh, are centrally involved in the Haute gun running. And I suppose the idea is, well, if the UVF have armed themselves, Pierce has a great line. Pierce says, the only thing more ridiculous than an Ulster Unionist holding a rifle is an Irish nationalist without one. Yes. So yeah. they kind of take it on themselves to, to arm themselves. They go to an arms dealer in Hamburg. They buy 1,500 Mauser rifles, 49,000 rounds of ammunition. 49,000. They bring it optimistic. And they bring it all into, into Ireland uh, in multiple locations, but most famously... Uh, at, at Holt, which is extraordinary, you know that that the 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 author of the Riddle of the Sand is now landing guns off the Irish coast. Yeah, but he goes back to Britain. Uh, he serves in the Great War effort, and then not for the first time, he goes totally disillusioned with British policy in Ireland uh, after 1916. And by 1919, he's back in the Irish fold. He's part of the Sinn Féin propaganda machine. So he's been bouncing forward and back, if you mm. will, between the cause of the empire and the cause uh, of overthrowing it. But because he's from the top of British society. That means he has incredible contacts in London mm. and that proves very, very important. Uh, it also means that there's a certain distrust though within that Sinn Féin machine that they wonder just how committed he is because they, they just find it so remarkable that someone who had the upbringing and, and background that he did would suddenly be such an, an avid, not even alone a home ruler, but also then just an, an outright Republican. Um, the feeling in the underground doll, uh, the one elected in 1918 and meets in 1919, their feeling is that the war isn't being reported right or that they have to do a little bit more to chase down the international press to sort of get what they think is their fair share of coverage. And they're everywhere. They're in London, they're in Washington, they're in New York, they're in Paris, they're in Berlin. They're trying to get into the ear of any journalist that will listen and shape the war. And he's a great line, Childers. He doesn't like how the war is being reported. He said it's being reported as a, a stab in the back rebellious province, which didn't help in the Great War. You know, we have to challenge that idea. <laughs> so they send him off to Paris when the, the peace conference is on. And But it's really in Britain. You know, he has, he has the brilliant contacts in London because that's... You know, mm. If you work in the House of Commons as a civil servant, you meet the journalists and he's able to establish these contacts in Britain and, and that's very, very important. He edits the newspaper, the Irish Bulletin. That's basically a paper that's you know aimed at the press. If you're mm. staying in a hotel room in Dublin, knock, knock, and it's outside the door yes, every morning. I mean, we've discussed before actually how much of a propaganda victory oh, it was. It was actually, and Childers had his, his major role in that. A daily news bulletin. You know, the, the, the British atrocities, the, the details of Republican victories, all of that for the press every day. So, I mean, he's very, very important in opening those doors on the world stage. And he's there in London, 1921, when they're, when they're negotiating the treaty, but he's the chief secretary of the Irish delegation. Okay, 
that's an important title. Chief exactly. Secretary of the Irish delegation. So he's not sitting at the table. So he's not part of the delegation. Exactly. And he's okay. not. Yeah, Winston Churchill actually ad- admired his novel, but thought very little of him politically. <laughs> so he's, he's, he's not sitting opposite the table from Lloyd George, Winston Churchill, and all of them. But he strongly rejects the treaty. And in the doll, then things got very, very ugly. Arthur Griffith. Uh, loses his temper and roars at him. I will not reply to any damned Englishman in this assembly. And unfortunately for Childers, not for the first or last time, you know, his birth uh, yeah. on the neighbouring island is kind of used against him. And given our migrant history, that's kind of sad, you know, because yeah. the Irish nation, you know, extends mm. uh, beyond the tiny little island. But for Childers, it became a, a thorn in his side. Um, he ends up on the the losing side, if you like. The the he denounces the Anglo-Irish Treaty, which which again, if you just even think about it for a second, is so remarkable that a guy who was born as part of the English <laughs> establishment and had no links to the island at all ends up becoming such an ardent nationalist that even the treaty is too much of a compromise for him. Um, he becomes then the main propagandist for the anti-treaty side, but the circumstances in which he's shot uh, yeah. remain deeply controversial. The anti-treaty, I mean, they, they were losing from the beginning. They tried to fight a, a defensive war in the south. They were, they were, you know, very quickly overturned and kind of fought a guerrilla war instead. And he's on the run. He's the main propagandist of the anti-treaty side, trying to keep this idea of the republic alive in mm. people's heads. But he's eventually arrested in November twenty-two. And what's mad about it is they charge him with possession of a small pistol because to be found in possession of arms was reason for execution. Yeah, but because the this gun, being you know the time of, of a civil war, so that's, course, that's fair enough. Yeah. And what's so weird is the little pistol that he has on him uh, in better and happier times was actually a keepsake, a memento from Michael Collins. So, you know, imagine, yeah, something that had been given so, to you by so a former it, friend. So there isn't, of course, we, we will never know for certain, but but if you think about it in that light, there's no reason to think that this was something that he ever planned to fire. This is a memento from a fallen comrade. Which is extraordinary. Yeah, it's absolutely extraordinary. But, I mean, the executions had begun uh, in November, in that very same month. And primarily they were kind of rank and file anti-treaty Republicans originally. Uh, you know, fellas that were found in possession of arms. 18-year-old kid, James Fisher, one of the first... Uh, but the executions were becoming kind of increasingly controversial for all kinds of reasons. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary that someone as high profile as him early on put before a firing squad. Mm, uh, remarkable stuff. Um, in England, he's a bit of a hate figure, but even still, it's surprising just how much vitriol there is when Childers is executed. Winston Churchill on, on, on the, the immediate aftermath of the execution, I mean, Churchill is obviously watching Ireland very, very closely. Yeah. He denounces uh, Childers after his, after his execution as a murderous renegade, a strange being who had a deadly hatred for the land of his birth. Isn't that extraordinary? Yeah. Uh, I mean, that well. obsession with where he came from, unfortunately, you know, that wasn't unlike what had been mm. said about him in the doll. But I love his final words. I think they're some of the, some of the greatest final, final words in Irish history. As he's about to be shot, he says to the firing squad, take, take a step or two forward, lads. It will be easier that way. <laughs> I don't know what to make it. Like, is he, is he just such an esteemed gentleman that he's like, listen, lads, don't put yourselves out. Like, if you're going to kill me, you may as well do it closer to point blank. There's no reason doing how, it from... How do you find the composure to say something like, take a yeah. step or two forward, lads. It'll be easier that way. Uh, it's also just striking in passing because these are the words of, of, um, of Winston Churchill in 1922. And then you fast forward 23 years later and he still can't get it into his head that Ireland has this own sense of nationhood mm. and that it won't join in the war effort second time around and that he just still finds it all so difficult to deal with. And and this is something he's grappling with for, for two decades plus. Um, we digress. Um, we as a country maybe could have learned much more from the way that he asked even his own son to move on from the tragedy of, of the falling out and the, the troubled birth of the state. Yeah, I mean, if you lose loved ones in such circumstances, if someone puts your, your father against a barrack wall and shoots him, I think you're entitled to carry a certain degree of bitterness yeah, about that. Yeah. But Erskine actually asked his, his son, the later president, then a, a teenager, 
to forgive and not just to forgive but he said son I want you to shake the hands of the men who signed my debt warrant and that was a promise that his son actually fulfilled he kept that promise wow. isn't that amazing and you know in a, in a country that really did struggle to come to terms with you know Cugan uh, and as they called yeah. it in Irish the war of the brothers uh, for generations that gesture is totally inspiring in its, in its own way isn't it well isn't it maybe nice to reflect just in closing then that if something that he asked his son to do and his son who was not a political creature because he's only a teenager he's 15 or 16 years old at the time that that's what actually plants the seeds that turns uh, Erskine Hamilton Childers his son into a sort of a political figure who then ends up being the head of state that his father once upon a time resisted the creation of I'm over the stamp collectors I know there's hundreds of thousands of them out there is this the first case of a father and son both been on stamps I don't know maybe it is maybe it is but they've both had a stamp uh, answers on a stamped address <laughs> postcard <laughs> or using the hashtag on the record NT uh, to uh, Marconi House Diggs Lane Dublin too uh, Donald Fallon as ever thank you very much Donald Fallon is the author of the soon to be lauded by the Daily Telegraph Three Castles <laughs> Burning uh, book uh, The History of Dublin in 12 Streets which would make a fine gift for somebody five weeks from today uh, available in all good bookshops now also the presenter of the podcast of the same name uh, and author of loads of other good books which are worth uh, diving into if you like the new one On the Record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11 Brought to you by PwC Great minds think unalike Different skill sets diverse opinions it all adds up to the new equation On News Talk